Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Simmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, June 11th, 2021, and I'm jumping right in so as to keep this intro as short as possible because this is a fabulous yet very long discussion with Professor Bruce Appleyard of San Diego State University and the author of Livable Streets 2.0. But before we get started, please allow me this very brief moment to acknowledge that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And I'm delighted to welcome yet another new patron, Patrick Kim from Providence, Rhode Island. It's truly an honor to welcome you to the Active Towns movement. Hey, more the merrier, folks. Please head over to my website at activetowns.org and navigate over to the donation page for more information and options. And one final reminder before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. This really does help with our visibility. Thanks. Okay, let's get to it. My recent conversation with Professor Bruce Appleyard. Bruce, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Well, John, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, hey, thanks for taking time to chat about your recently published book, Livable Streets 2.0, Creating More People-Oriented Places and Your Academic Work in General. But to get us started, please just share a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, thanks. Yeah, so I grew up in Berkeley, California, and uh, lived in in many places across the country. I have a degree in geography and a master's in city regional planning and also a PhD in city regional planning from UC Berkeley. And now I'm at uh, San Diego State University as an associate professor, focusing on the intersection between transportation, land use and urban design. And I've had a long, I've had a long interest in streets and how the you know, streets are most uh, accessible public spaces in our community and also they... Uh, you know, make up so much more of our public spaces than anything else. And uh, we really need to get them right to uh, make our communities livable and sustainable. Did you go right into academia or or did you go to work out in the in the real world for a little while? <laughs> I worked out in the real world. I was uh, I've, I've worked as an urban designer and, and uh, as a planner. I was a uh, I worked in Charlottesville, Virginia as a as an all purpose neighborhood planner. So I got all the complaint calls, but I also did all the development review. <laughs> so soup to nuts uh, planner. So I learned uh, I learned uh, before I got my Ph.D., I had a lot of work out in the field. I also was a planning commissioner and I was a member of the Board of Zoning Appeals. And then I applied that uh, kind of uh, ground up knowledge from my experiences working in the real world to my uh, PhD. So then I went back to get my PhD later in life and ended up at San Diego State, which is a beautiful place to be. Yeah, yeah. We, we were just talking a little bit about uh, San Diego before we hit the record button. Describe Berkeley and then contrast that with like your neighborhood there in San Diego. Sure. Well, Berkeley uh, was really born uh, and grew up uh, in the time before cars, before cars were really prevalent. So it, it developed a grid pattern that worked really well to kind of keep keep it livable and walkable. And most of the, uh, the buildings, most of the housing stock in Berkeley are uh, kind of craftsman era. They're very, they're unique to each other. 
built in the, the teens and you know the teens and twenties. And then there's a mixture. There's a good mixture of uses. There's uh, there's shops and and businesses kind of interspersed around the community. So it's much more of a walkable urban environment. Very bikeable too. And uh, San Diego, in contrast, uh, you know there are there are areas that are like Berkeley and San Diego. There there are areas that were built up in the period uh, uh, largely before the automobile or in the in the in the uh, 1900s and the teens, but for the most part, San Diego really became kind of a freeway town. So there's a lot of freeways in San Diego. And I think every driver you encounter on the roads in San Diego, you probably they probably were on the freeway just a few minutes earlier. So they're driving with that sort of ethic. And there's sort of a there's statement down here in San Diego that everything is freeway close. So, you, you know, if, if you're getting from one part of the region to the other, you're, you're often taking a freeway. Uh, so a lot of the uh, San Diego grew up in a lot of uh, cul-de-sacs, you know, uh, kind of loops, lollipops and cul-de-sacs in uh, kind of the suburban areas. But for the most part, it also what it what it has in San Diego is what I call mesas. I usually do this with my hands, mesas, canyons and coastal plains. So everything's on a mesa or in a canyon or, or in a coastal plain. And so there's some sort of concentration of development that occurs in San Diego so transit, uh, light rail transit like we have down here can actually work fairly well. And uh, there's a chance for us to make it a transit metropolis, although we have freeways that sort of compete with that. So it's a beautiful place. It's, you know, it's got a, a wonderful climate, which is unfortunately changing. It's getting warmer and hotter all the time. So it's losing its sort of uh, sense of paradise. And one of the things my father did was he did a, a, a plan for San Diego uh, where he, uh, they titled it, where they're asking the question, temporary paradise. And uh, I think that's really, you know, is it, a, the, the question is, is, is San Diego a paradise and can it maintain its paradise status? So that's, you know, that's a quick uh, overview of San Diego. Yeah. What's interesting is, and we mentioned this uh, also before I hit the record button, is that I had to remind myself where San Diego State University, the campus itself was, because it's actually quite a bit further east than I than I realized. And the other thing that jumped out at me when I was looking at the map was that, um, you know, further west, back towards the downtown area, you have your typical gridded street pattern uh, development in that area, but then out by the university there. It's, as you were just describing, more of the cul-de-sacs and the lollipops and the curving neighborhood streets. And also heading back towards the west, west, I saw uh, neighborhoods called University Heights and University Village. Is there a different university there or was the university originally in that area? I think there was a university there earlier on. And I think that's why it's called University Heights. And I think it's possible that the university that was there did move out to, to be what San Diego State is. There was a, there was a, there was there was its own university there, kind of a teaching college. Got it. If I recall correctly. Well, I got excited when I first was pulling up the map because I just pulled up San Diego. I didn't type in San Diego State University. I just pulled up the city and and I saw a university and I'm like, oh, look at that gridded pattern and 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 I'm like, oh, I bet you know this is like uh, you know as you had mentioned, you know some earlier development uh, pattern and and then that I sort of 
was like, oh, a little bummed when I realized the university was way out east. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay, here's the here's the question. Where are you situated? Are you situated near the university or or in a, in different neighborhoods? And, and the, the million dollar question is, are you able to walk or bike to, to campus? I'm not, I actually am able to walk and bike to campus. I mean, not walk, but I am able to bike. I, I live about eight miles away and uh, I'm in a place called Midtown. It's kind of a little canyon uh, near where the freeway is. Uh, so I'm right near the, all the activity, the airport, the freeway. And uh, what's nice is that there are also some restaurants nearby, so I could walk to those. But I've got an e-bike, and I could ride my e-bike to campus and go down El Cajon Boulevard, which is the old, uh, the old kind of highway out, out east, and uh, ride my bike to campus, which unfortunately I haven't been able to do uh, here in, in quite a while. Yeah, yeah. So obviously the campus has been closed. Yeah. Yeah, I hear uh, you there. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, yeah, okay, so Midtown, so that, it looks like that's really, really uh, close to Balboa Park and close to the water, a little bit cooler breezes there, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. The one nice thing we have in San Diego is we have the uh, sea breezes that come in and often, I think, come up the canyon so that they're very, um, so there's sort of a natural kind of uh, air conditioning system that the region has. Even I was living right near campus a few years ago, and even eight miles inland, you can get the uh, the sea breeze coming in off the ocean. So it can co- so it can go that go that far up the uh, the up the river valleys and the canyons. And I think that's a really special part of what keeps San Diego different from uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. And for those people who uh, may not know the area intimately, the coastal areas in Southern California, oftentimes this this time of year, are quite gray in the morning. And, you know, we call it the, the May gray and the June gloom that takes place. And it takes a little while for that uh, marine layer to burn off. And, you know, and so you can see those beautiful blue sunny skies that uh, we all associate with, you know, beautiful Southern California beaches. That's right. We've got the May grade going on right now. So you say it's about eight miles. Describe what that commute would be like on that e-bike. It's a lot of mixed traffic. Again, sort of, as I mentioned, there's sometimes you, you're encountering cars, cars and drivers who have actually been on the road, on the freeway uh, moments earlier before you see them. So there's some aggressive driving behavior, but there is a dedicated bike lane. And uh, for, most, for most of the way down uh, El Cajon Boulevard, and that works pretty well. So, uh, you know, there's just intersections you have to watch out for. Driving in San Diego, I think, is a perilous activity, especially around the intersections. Okay, so you called it a dedicated bike lane, and we'll get into a little bit of the the, the wonkiness of some of the different uh, infrastructure stuff when we start talking about the book. But uh, is that a fairly comfortable uh, dedicated bike lane? Is it sort of the old school or are we looking at a buffered or protected lane? It's not buffered, but it's got it's got a stripe and it's actually shared with a bus. So it's kind of a, a share a shared bus lane uh, with the um, uh, with the bikes. OK. So you you obviously put yourself into the category of, you know, a f- very confident rider if you're out there mixing it up yes. with traffic in, in that type of a facility. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's yeah. And, and that's what we need to think about. We need to think about the, the different skill levels of the different bicyclists. And it's very important. So getting back to sort of your, you know, formative years there in Berkeley, 
It is a city that is inherently, as you mentioned, walkable, bikeable. What was that like growing up there in terms of being able to, did you feel like you had a, a, a fair amount of <laughs> freedom, a free range kind of kid? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my bike was my, was my best friend. I got every, I, I got everywhere around Berkeley on my own. And the other thing that they had at Berkeley was um, they had the barriers that were used to sort of block off streets. Uh, and I actually, that's a, it's a main point. I mean, the, the story of the barriers in Berkeley is a main part of Livable Streets 2.0. The story about how the barriers came to be and and how they've actually uh, how they've actually endured all those years. They were temporary treatments that you know, and sometimes nothing can be more more permanent than a temporary treatment. So I was able to ride my bike all around Berkeley. Uh, the barriers created great, safe, protected streets, bike boulevards all over the place, naturally created by the barriers. And I was able to ride my bike all the way from my our house in Rockridge, all the way across Berkeley about four miles away. So four miles across the, the city of Berkeley. Uh, and this was in the uh, 70s and the 80s. So it was an interesting time. Fantastic. Well, that's great. So it sounds like what you're describing there is uh, a lot of what we saw <laughs> during the pandemic recently is uh, cities scrambling to put up, you know, some barriers and some some traffic calming devices. And I'm assuming this the barriers had were, were permeable for people walking and biking, but not for cars. Is that correct? That's correct. So. You mentioned Livable Streets 2.0, so let's go ahead and dive into that. For those listeners who may not really, maybe they, they kind of know Livable Streets, but maybe not really, why don't you go ahead and describe the, the book and the project and and why a 2.0? Right, so 2.0 is a, is a re- reboot of my father's book, uh, Livable Streets, that was uh, published in 1981. And uh, it's it's about the, the conflict the power and the promise of our streets. So the conflict is really about the research and what we understand about the, the interactions between people and traffic. And uh, I expanded that research above and beyond what my father first had. Uh, I edited uh, many of his chapters down. And the power is all about uh, the power relations between people who are trying to fix streets and kind of recapture streets for livability and the power dynamics between all the different actors and agents of uh, creating the street. But there's also an element of the need for ethics and the need for empathy and, and uh, the need for equity in, our, in, in the design of our streets. So that keys things up for the third part, which is all about the, the promise. So how do we actually get there? How do we actually build off of these lessons of the conflict from the conflict and the power and guided by a charter for, for humane and equitable streets in one of the chapters, as well as a discussion of livability ethics for uh, equity, empathy, and justice. Then we go into sort of into the nuts and bolts of how you actually create livable and complete streets. And that's, that's the uh, promise part of the whole book. So it goes from soup to nuts to sort of understanding people in traffic, uh, the power relations around trying to create livable and complete streets, and then actually creating livable and complete streets. So talking about bicycle infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure, crossing the street, getting along the street, and traffic calming. Some of the most profound things that came from your, your father's original work is, and, and, and the images, the, the, the stuff that you know, comes to mind that, you know, that sticks with me, and I would say I probably 
first discovered his work uh, around a decade or so ago when I really started diving into the built environment and how that impacts healthy, active living. And the, the, the visual image of, of his work, of course, is, is featured on, on the cover of your, you know, the 2.0, the new book, is, is of course, the, the image that is the line representation of connectivity and connections and how people are interacting along these three different streets. Why don't you describe that? Because there's something just absolutely beautiful about the message, you know, the, that is contained within this. So why don't you go ahead and describe that original work and, and, and sort of what's in the image. I'll make sure that we have graphic images, uh, you know, built into the landing page for this episode so that folks will get a visual as to what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm happy to describe it. So he looked at three different streets that were similar in all respects, except for their levels of traffic. And then he asked questions, uh, various questions of the, of the people who lived on those streets, uh, such as, can you locate your friends and acquaintances? And what we see on the, uh, on the light traffic street is that it's, it's really knit together, that the, that the community and the street, the street really provides a place that uh, the community can come together and really knits people together. So there were, whereas on the heavily traffic street, it's ripped apart. So the traffic really rips people that rips rips the community apart uh, on both sides of the street, and so the um, you had three times as many friends and twice as many acquaintances on the light traffic street as you did on the heavily traffic street. And he also asked questions about the extent of your home territory. And so on the light traffic street, people really explored uh, and really felt ownership over also all parts of the streets, you know, across the street, down the aisle, down the alleys on the other side of the street, and really felt a stronger connection and a much more expansion, a much more expanded uh, home territory than the people on the heavily traffic street. It, those are all very uh, effective uh, illustrations of uh, how traffic affects uh, people and communities. Let's define traffic a little bit here because you're talking about high, low, medium uh, levels of traffic. Are we talking volume and speed or just one of those two? We're talking about both volume and speed. Even on a light traffic street, a hot rodder coming down the street could actually create a, a real problem. So he was actually measuring volume, but uh, speed is a big factor. And I, in the book, I talk about speed and how uh, we really need to keep uh, our speeds lower than 25 miles an hour because 25 miles an hour, the fatality rate of crashes goes up dramatically. Right. Yeah. As as we go up in motor vehicle speed, that impact on anyone outside a motor vehicle, it just it, that, you know, the, the fatality levels go up exponentially as well as the serious injuries go yeah. up exponentially. You mentioned volume too there a couple of different times, and it makes me uh, think of the double entendre of volume, which is noise volume. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. talk right. a little bit about that because that was sort of included in there too. Yeah, I think noise is a, another sort of uh, invasion of, of uh, traffic uh, on people and an imposition of traffic on people. And I think it's the um, the uh, kind of hidden harms of of noise volume on people along streets. Uh, it, it sort of you know, is one of the impositions of traffic on people and actually affects uh, people's sense of their home territory and safety and uh, 
a sense of well-being. Yeah, yeah. These streets, these original three streets were in the city of San Francisco, correct? That's correct. When you look back and think about your time in Berkeley, can you kind of find analogous streets from your memory uh, in terms of these these three different types of streets? Yes, you could actually find lots of streets like this. You know, the, the heavily traffic streets and the, the medium traffic streets and the light traffic streets. It was one of the things that I talk about and my father talked about in the book is when we're directing traffic, we want to direct it uh, away from the residential streets and onto the commercial streets. So um, that, you know, the barrier system in Berkeley was really about sort of uh, uh, stopping cut through traffic, protecting your residential neighborhoods and um, uh, directing traffic onto uh, the more major commercial streets. So in other words, that was a tactical urbanism intervention. Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> Long before uh, Mike coined the term tactical Definitely. urbanism. And, and Mike actually wrote a uh, sidebar, featured a sidebar of, of Mike's in the, in the book. In fact, that entire section of the book dives into a lot of what we're seeing out there in terms of the toolbox, uh, you know, tools that are available in the toolbox for interventions and of course the the tactical urbanism uh, aspect of it. And we've had Mike on the, on the podcast. And so for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, you definitely want to go back and listen to it because it was pretty fantastic. Um, a lot, some of the other things that are in that section of the book too, of, uh, you get into some of the details of the different types of infrastructure, the different types of treatments, uh, tweaks, fixes. Um, but you also talk a lot about shared streets and shared space. Yes. Talk a little bit more deeply about what that is, because when I think livable streets, one of the first things that comes to my mind is the work that the late Ben Hamilton Bailey, who I did get to, to meet before he passed away, and also the work of, of Hans Monderman. And of course, I think mutual friends of ours uh, now live in Delft, uh, Chris and Melissa Bruntlett. And uh, that's where the original Wooner was from, from way back when. Yes. So talk about that concept of shared space. Right. So, and, and actually, I, I've actually been to Delft a few times uh, growing up and uh, accompanying my father to do research there. And the, uh, and sort of uh, the Wunerf or the shared street concept that my father talked about, um, he really highlighted it in the original livable streets and he really held it up as a kind of a utopian idea of, of what streets should be like. So the idea is that, you know, you can actually create a street where you have shared, shared spaces for people and cars and uh, you could have play spaces that the cars travel as if they're guests. And, you know, there's sort of a mixture of traffic. And I've taken this a little bit further and taken uh, and, and documented other, other pictures and videos of other places, other sort of shared streets and shared spaces, and really sort of captured, you know, what is the essence of creating a space like this? And how do you actually make it so you have a priority where the people are first, Bicyclists are next, transit's next, and then cars are the last on the list and the ones who feel like they're supposed to act like guests on the street. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the image, uh, and, and, and I've had the opportunity to, to visit Delft as well, and, and I'm just, it's always so, especially if you spend a, a fair amount of time there, 
<laughs> it's like that we talked about it earlier, the noise level. Well, guess what? You know, the noise level comes way down and you're like, oh, yeah, this is like a, an incredibly livable type of, of situation. Getting into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of, of what we're talking about with a shared street, and Hans Monderman brought up the concept of, of also naked streets yes, and, and, and talking about this not cluttering up streets to the point where you are taking away the responsibility of the driver to actually think. Right. Talk a little bit about that concept, because I think it, it one of the, the most uncomfortable things that drivers have about shared space is is the ambiguity of it. And therein lies part of the beauty. Yes. So I'd say that it's really about creating streets with a lot of intrigue that tell an intriguing story. And that is, uh, you know, rather than giving somebody a predictive, a predictable novel and uh, a driver giving them sort of a predictable story that sort of lulls them into a false sense of security. So they drive faster the idea of the naked street, the naked street concept is taking away all those sort of accoutrements of the uh, you know, engineering accoutrements, uh, road lines and, um, you know, sight distances, even signage and creating a street that and then also changing the pavement. So it, it makes the drivers feel that they're guests on a street that need to drive with care and uh, watch out for others, especially pedestrians and bicyclists. And so I'd say that, and, and that's sort of the idea of the shared streets concept as well. And I, uh, I highlight Hans Monderman's work and also uh, Ben Hamilton Bailey's work and, and their work in sort of pioneering uh, naked streets and also shared streets. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that comes with, you know, over-defining things, and not only is it just the false sense of security, but it also creates this sense of ownership and entitlement to the quote unquote space that has been allocated to them. And so then there's that defensiveness of it. And so we have this sort of dichotomy of different treatments with and and how they're applied in different contexts. And where I'm heading with this, in some contexts on some streets, because of the, the speed that we were talking about earlier of motor vehicles, we want to make sure that we, pl- we provide safe, protected, comfortable places for people not in motor vehicles. And then you have, you know, defined space for the motor vehicles. And this is exactly not that. <laughs> this is this is a, a, an environment that's the complete antithesis of that, of where the space is is quote unquote undefined, and it's shared, and therefore there's a certain level of responsibility of the road users of, of the space, and understanding sort of the guidelines is so imperative to making that space work well. And so some of the things that that get done in that, and you talk about this in the book, is those cues. It becomes obvious when you enter in one of these spaces that this is different. This is not that motorway I was just on. 
this is a people-oriented place. Talk a little bit more about the subtleties of that, that messaging and how, how does the driver know? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think uh, an interesting, uh, interesting work that we need to do in this country is to look at how do we transition from the, from the freeway space to the shared street space and what sort of story we tell the drivers along the way. And it's, it's, it's things like narrowing, it's, uh, it's uh, sight distances, it's uh, changes in pavement, uh, changes in elevation in the pavement, and uh, some signage as well that, goes, that can go along to tell you that it's a shared street. Yeah. And even in, in your, your neighborhood and, and, and some of the beach communities all throughout uh, San Diego County, I can remember there's really, really old streets and small streets. They're so narrow. I mean, there's just there's hordes of people you know, surfing and playing and hanging out at, at the beaches. And so you, you have this tension of that. Oh, this is shared space. There's not enough space for everybody who's walking and biking and and you know getting to the beach. And so you have this this forced mixing. So it's not as if that North America just doesn't have these. We do have these, but it's that shifting, pardon the pun, <laughs> of shifting down from being in the mindset of I'm getting from point A to point B as fast as possible to I, I need to back off. Priority, I'm not the priority here. The more vulnerable space users, roadway users are the priority. Right. And in the case of the Dutch, you know, they'll, they even put a little bit of signage out there and put a little bit of markings out on the road on the feet struts to communicate that it actually is a true bicycle priority street where the car is guessed. And so it is defined a little bit more in those, those contexts mm -hmm. and, and you know, sort of our version of the bicycle boulevards. Right. The, yeah, exactly. Our bicycle boulevards. Um, but yeah, we do end up having, as I said, the sort of concentrations we have here in San Diego where people do all come together and uh, like little Italy is a, is a really good place that mixes traffic and people, uh, especially in the pandemic when they shut little, uh, shut little Italy down to cars and uh, we're able to get outdoor living spaces and streeteries and things like that, that really kind of make it a, a, a nice livable environment. How can North American cities build more of these people oriented places, you know, and leveraging li livable streets to be able to help do that? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to first come down to land use. So you have the land uses that allow for a mixture of uses. Uh, and different activities and, a, and an agglomeration of different activities that, that people could walk walk between. Of course, it's then the street environment. Uh, and I think we then need to design our streets so that uh, cars know that they're the guests and we can create these livable places. And uh, that's why we've seen some really good walkable places come up in sort of auto-oriented suburbs, such as like Pasadena. Pasadena did a great job of uh, creating a very walkable environment and, and kind of livable space. Uh, but many, many places we need to take advantage of are, are these places that were built up prior to our sort of real rise of motordom, as, as has been termed. And we can convert these places into being very walkable places. What are some of the other strategies that you highlighted in the book to try to help transform 
and maybe soften some of these harsh environments that are our streets? How do we, how do we get motor vehicle drivers to slow down? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so I, I, kind of, I break it down into a couple different tasks we need to think about. Uh, getting people along the street, getting people across the street, and traffic calming. And that's all part of the uh, Charter for Humane and Equitable Streets. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the first things we need to do are think about uh, what we're communicating to the drivers. There are expensive treatments, and there, there are some that are really uh, inexpensive. So I think making lanes narrower helps uh, slow dri- drivers down quite a bit. And I, so, and I think about sort of Mike Lydon and the tactical urbanism and how we can actually do a lot of things with paint, make, make lanes uh, narrower. There's also some really neat protected uh, intersection designs that are coming out of, uh, of Holland. And uh, I think we can try those for uh, protected bike lanes. I think also we need to make sure that drivers know that they're coming up to a crosswalk and have you know, the signage and either the flashing beacons that tell, people, you know, tell them that people are about to, about to cross. Those are really important. Uh, you know, I take on the whole idea of the, cro- the crosswalk uh, story that, you know, there's sometimes crosswalks can be more dangerous. And that's if they're, if they're not accompanied by the proper treatments. So uh, marking crosswalks and marking crosswalk areas, uh, the approach to crosswalks is very important. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, rapid flashing beacons are, are really effective, uh, a lower cost uh, treatment than, than other things. And those are, those are uh, you know, the pedestrian activated rapid flashing beacons. I think those are good uh, treatments to help people get across the street. Uh, but what we need to do is, is basically tell a whole story to drivers that they're not the kings of the road, that they're actually guests on the street. And I think that's, uh, we need to think about a whole, a progressive story approach that we're telling drivers. And I think in this, in this country, we've, built, we've overbuilt so many freeways everywhere that in San Diego in particular, we've got, we've basically told drivers that it's really a, a driver domain. And we need, to, we need to put the same sort of effort into putting in treatments that, that tell drivers that they're, not, that they're not the kings of the road, that they're the, that they're the guests and they have to watch out for, for people. And so we need a, a similar kind of interstate highway effort interstate highway-like effort to retell the story of our streets. And gosh, we, when, when you step back and you think about it, the visual that I had in my mind when you were going through those three different sections was uh, is the prototypical high-speed strode that we have in North America, where you're looking at speeds in excess of 35, 45, sometimes even 50 miles per hour, And yet it's getting up to high speeds and then coming to a screeching halt at the next stoplight, mini driveway cuts. I mean, these are just despotic kinds of environments to be able to be in and not be in a car. You know, it's that it's going to be incredibly hard to fix these things with lighter, quicker, cheaper interventions. Should we be? Focusing our time on those, or should we be looking at lower hanging fruit? Well, I think lower hanging fruit is a really good thing to look at. But I think that we should uh, make a major effort to kind of recapture our streets. 
and have sort of a, I mean, we have a complete streets initiative and Barbara McCann is actually in at the, at the U S department of transportation, which I think is a really good sign. And I think with Pete, uh, with Pete Buttigieg, uh, another really great sign, uh, uh, you know, a small town mayor who, who has experience in uh, redesigning streets for livability. And I think we need to kind of set our sights high. And I think the federal government should play a role in helping fund these new treatments. Yeah, and, and I'm a fairly vocal critic of complete streets initiatives where it's just an engineering checkbox right. of where they, they're like, oh, okay, fine. If you're going to force us to, to accommodate everybody or make it able for everybody, then on that strode, yeah, there's your sidewalk. Good luck. Have fun. Here's your bike lane. Good luck. Have fun. Right. Voila, complete streets. I would be much more supportive of a concept of completely livable streets. Completely livable streets. I like that. <laughs> In other words, let's get authentic about this because the bottom line is John and Bruce, we're comfortable riding anywhere, everywhere. Right. You know, that's not the case. If we're going to be creating truly safe and inviting all ages and abilities facilities and cycle networks and pedestrian facilities, it has to be authentically comfortable for everybody, regardless of age, regardless of ability. And so that's the, I mean, that's ultimately, and and that's where I get into my, I get my behaviorist hat on that if we can't make it something that is easy and comfortable and feel safe, it just isn't going to happen. Right. No, that's a, that's a really important point. I think, that I, and I write about it in the book, the uh, levels of traffic stress and the different types of treatment that should uh, that we should use to make people more comfortable, especially with bicycling. Uh, you know, there's a there's a large group of people, about sixty percent, who are, who are interested in cycling but are concerned, and so we need to make these roads and these streets as comfortable as possible, and as uh, connected, and can't have uh, breaks in the system. You have to have them uh, comprehensive, connected, and comfortable. Yeah. And I know you've done a lot of work in uh, the area of transit, too, and, and looking at, you know, that. And I was uh, honored to have uh, Roland Kaher uh, on from the Netherlands to talk about the the magical connection between the the Dutch uh, cycle network and the Dutch train system. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you've uh, looked into in terms of the viability of integrating uh, transit and active mobility, because ultimately if we don't solve the, the first and last mile or two miles situation, transit's never gonna go anywhere in the United States. Yeah, no, it's true, and I think that uh, a big a big thing that's been a plus is that people put bikes on, uh, you know, bike carriers on buses, so you can actually uh, extend the extend the bike trip or extend the extend the bus trips by a bike. And I think bikes on transit are extremely important. But it, can I can I interject one thing? I mean, I agree, it is extremely important. And as somebody who travels around the world with his foldable bike, I have a Brompton. I can actually, if I tried to rely on the one or two or three spaces available at the front of the bus, that wouldn't work. I, you know, I can fold mine up into the size of a large briefcase and, and bring it on board with me and tuck it under the seat. That's not a viable solution 
and this is what the Dutch have have found is that even bringing your bike onto the the transit network in in the Netherlands doesn't really work that well. Right. It's much better to have a system where you have ample, safe, secure parking for your personal bike at the beginning of your transit journey. And then when you get to the other end of your transit journey, you can jump on a bike share or you've got a second bike or Mm -hmm. within walking distance. I mean, that's utopia, obviously. But yeah, so I'm I'm sorry. I I had to interject that just because it's, it's, it's like, yeah, that's great for the first three people. And then after that, it's like, oh, what do I do? Right. And I think that we need to think about getting transit to where people are, you know, making sure we have the routes that that make sense for people. And I think that, you know, we need to re- remember that every uh, transit trip is either a biking or walking trip as well. So getting people across the street and uh, to the buses. And uh, I think you have also uh, safety security at the, at the transit stations is an, is an important thing to think about as well. And also try to cut down those transfers as much as possible or make, or make sure you have synchronized buses operating at the same time so that, that if you come to a transfer point, you could get right on the, uh, the bus or the train. Yeah. And, you know, and also tra- transit-oriented development can be high, uh, high conflict zones. So we need to make sure that we think about the intersection, I mean, the um, interactions and the intermingling of different traffic at the transit, at the transit stations. Right, right. And one thing I found out that, that is really important is don't put your transit stations right near where the freeway off ramps are. So if we, if you, you remember uh, Rockridge Station in Berkeley, uh, it's far away from the actual off ramps. And it actually uh, is an elevated station. So it actually helps the uh, activities kind of foster, you know, um, basically do very well in terms of being a TOD. Yeah, yeah, it's very important. Uh, in fact, it brings up an image I have of a a TOD in the Dallas area where, you know, there's all this housing here, they've got the station there, but oh, by the way, there's a massive high-speed corridor strode cutting right through there. Yeah, not really easy to get there, you know, from here. What new projects are you working on? I'm actually working on, just finished this encyclopedia entry for uh, designing for active travel and basically combining a lot of the elements of of the book, the key elements of the book for guiding people and communities, laypersons as well as uh, professionals, to uh, how they should design and redesign streets. Thinking about the human scale, thinking about how do we preserve humanity in our streets, how do we uh, think about land use as well as the buildings and how they uh, provide enclosure to the streets, as well as how we actually design the streets themselves. Yeah, yeah. And obviously when we when we get around to how to design the streets themselves, it, that, that kind of takes us into a, a couple of different ways that we can look at that. We can look at it from like a 30,000 foot level of conceptually, but then you right. can also drive down to uh, the specifics. So in this new paper that came out, was this sort of conceptual or was this diving into some of the details? Diving into the details, uh, now keep, keeping things also thinking about things at a, at a, uh, conce- at a higher level, uh, like the land uses and the buildings, but also thinking about at the, at the human scale level and, and the ideas of such as, uh, you know, getting people safely and comfortably across the street and getting people safely and com- comfortably along the street and then traffic calming and controlling speeds. And also thinking about equity, ethics and justice. 
in how we design our streets and making them empathetic, making sure that we're thinking about, we're putting ourselves in people's shoes and what they have to deal with to try to get along and across the streets. And a great deal of empathy in the, in the approach to uh, redesigning our streets to make them safer and more livable and walkable. Yeah, yeah. Now, you threw a lot out there and, and kind of, you know, kind of attached a bunch of them in, because you also said the buildings and how, how the buildings relate to the street and how they form sort of like, like even a, an outdoor room, uh, so to speak, and land use. And when I, when I pause and I think about things that we can have under our control in the short term versus long term, you know, things like land use definitely take a longer period of time to, to, to shape. Yes. And, and oftentimes that also dictates uh, potentially the changing of policy, of codes, things of that nature. So l- let's kind of be, we'll, we'll get back to the street because I think one of the things that we can do quicker is reimagine what the street space is done but for especially for new developments and expansion of cities i wish they wouldn't be doing that so much but <laughs> they are uh then 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 the buildings and the land use uh you know they're being built now and so let's address some of those things so let's talk a little bit about land use buildings and then we'll get back to the street right so it's important to have buildings have a relationship to the street, that they provide and they help define the space. They're not divorced from the street itself. And that has uh, several effects. I mean, it gives people a sense of enclosure. Uh, it gives them a sense of uh, kind of coziness in an outdoor room. There's some research that shows that it has an effect on driving and that actually the drivers drive with more care if they have not just uh, the enclosure and the buildings having a relationship to the street, but that there's transparency, that there's windows, that the buildings have complexity, that they have interests and identity, that all these things help tell drivers that this is a place where you drive more, with more care. It also makes people feel better. So it's an important sort of element of making a, a community walkable. So let's try to paint a picture of what this looks like. I know what you're talking about. Maybe there's a few uh, folks in the audience that are like, what is Professor Bruce talking about here? <laughs> Well, sure. It, it's basically that the, the building has a relationship to the street that it actually uh, kind of abuts the sidewalk, uh, that you have windows so that you actually can perceive what's happening inside uh, the building and the, and the active space, that you have uh, commercial retail on the ground floors. In terms of enclosure, common rule is a uh, rule of thumb is sort of the Renaissance kind of one to one ratio of, a, of you know, buildings to the street. But higher buildings can also be good as well. Maybe not towers right right next to the sidewalk, but you know, good six six seven stories going up. You know, they sort of speak to each other on both sides of the street in terms of their design. It's also good to have a regular distance, uh, maybe twenty five to fifty feet, and also just again to sort of have this sort of sense of complexity and to the buildings, the building design themselves that they actually have kind of a human scale element that um, they're broken up to the point. Uh, the facade is broken up to the point where you can actually relate to it at a human scale. It's not a it's not a big, huge, modernist expanse of uh, a uh, uh, blank wall. Yeah. So the the visualization that I have here is sort of the difference between a, a traditional development pattern or an older 
a city maybe on the East Coast or, or even in Europe where, you know, you have your street and then you you have the buildings that are really, you know, quite close to where the, the public realm is, the streetscape is. And then it, it doesn't go right up to a, a 30-story tower. I mean, it's it's a reasonable height. And you mentioned something, you know, maybe four or five, six stories high. And it reminds me of, of uh, one of the things that Jan Gale talks about in his uh, in in several of his books, actually, which talks about building at human scale. And once you get too high up, you're you know there's no relationship. A person looking up, you know, to somebody on a balcony can't really see them, and a person who's up there looking down, they look like little tiny ants. And so once you get above that sort of uh, thing. And as you mentioned, you could have taller buildings, but maybe you, you that relationship, maybe it's a stepped approach. It's a setback, yeah. Yes, yes. That way that way you can do that. And and Vancouver does a wonderful job of Yes. Many of the buildings have that. So there's a relationship. It, you almost feel like as a as a human on the street either walking or biking, you, you almost feel like you're being hugged by the buildings around you versus feeling, you know, you know, absolutely dominated by a, a skyscraper next to you, which is just all glass and, and there's no relationship to you and, uh, and, and maybe not even, you know, to what's happening on the ground floor. So you had mentioned permeability, being able to see into and feel like you're being welcomed into the ground floor activities. So that's the buildings. Let's talk about land use because the two are connected. Yes, absolutely. So land use, uh, you want to have uh, important destinations and activities in the buildings themselves that people want to be able to walk to. That makes uh, all the difference in terms of, you know, people are really, their desire to walk is really to get to places and to, to take care of uh, important activities. So a mixture of uses and having that sort of, and having the ability to, to uh, take care of things, shop, take care of errands, you know, even school. So uh, that can actually help people uh, walk and bike. So these are really important things that we have to think about. It's not just it, it, you know, designing a street that's good for walking and bicycling. Only really matters when people are just trying to get from one place to the other. Uh, travel is a derived demand, and we need to think about uh, how people are deriving the demand for travel with the uses that we put in, this, in the buildings. And even at a, at a more 30,000 foot level, the, when we look at land use, if, if we are building you know, these meaningful destinations far apart from each other and far apart from people, it continues to you know, perpetuate the car dominance and the car dependency. Yep. And the necessity or the the likelihood that a street is going to be treated as a higher speed thoroughfare versus a place in and of itself. In other words, it, the street becomes something you, you, you think of like from a plumbing perspective. Right. You just want to shoot stuff through it. Right. And it's not a place that you go to. In other words, it's a it's a drive through versus go to. Right. Or a cause, you want a cause to be there, not a causeway. There you go. A cause to be there, not a causeway. Absolutely. And so there, there's that connection again. Uh, again, land use driving, uh, multiple different types of buildings. There's interest, you know, from as you stroll along the, the sidewalk there or you're coasting along on your 
on your bike and you're able to see many different types of buildings, many different types of businesses, many different types of of structures uh, versus, you know, just, you know, block after block of solid walls and things of that nature. So it, it really does mean that we are operating on all of these different things, the land use, the types of building, the typography. And, uh, you know, even James Jacobs talked a little bit about, you know, you have to be careful about some of your big parks that you put in because, you know, it's like they become vacuums. Exactly. They can become a vacuum very much beloved. And we need to have parks because that is also another meaningful destination and a beloved activity asset. But at the same time, we want to make sure that, you know, it's it's fitting into the whole uh, scheme of things. And that's where planning comes in. That's where the land use comes in. And that's thinking about things, uh, you know, sort of, you know, thoughtfully, now that we know so much more about human behavior and the impact of human scale. So now that brings us back around to the street, unless you had a couple more things to say about land use and buildings. Just, I think I like the way you put it, that you have to feel, you have to feel hugged by the buildings, you know, a sense of enclosure and comfort. There's also research that shows that, you know, complex and meaningful buildings that have a sense of identity actually uh, affect how people walk and that they, 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 don't, they don't mind the walk along interesting streets. And the other thing to mention, too, is that, you know, if you have more active uses and a mixture of uses, that you have more people. And so there's, a, there's, a sort of, there's also research that shows that there's safety in numbers so that people are, are out and about on the street, drivers, drivers will drive with more care as well. So all these things we need to think about. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, it, that you as you're walking, if it, if you're interest, if there's interesting places as you're walking by, you also the, the studies have shown that you'll tend to walk farther. In other words, you'll yes. actually get more right. <laughs> physical activity in and just because, you know, time passes as you're going from one interesting place to another interesting place to another interesting place. And if anybody, you know, doubts that, just try doing it sometime. Go, right. go, go to New York City, go to Paris, and you, you'll just be blown away if you have a, a little smartwatch or, or you turn on the app on your, on your smartphone to, to count the number of steps. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was like no problem whatsoever getting in 10,000 steps. And in yeah. fact, 30 and 40,000 steps are quite doable, yep. you know, just because you're drawn from one cool, interesting thing to another. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, so that brings us back to the street, because even if we have really good land use and really good, interesting buildings, if the street is still a thoroughfare, we got a problem. So how do we fix that thing? Right. So the thing, so a couple things we can do. We think about getting people safely and comfortably across the street and safely and comfortably along the street. So we need to provide, obviously, we need to provide adequate uh, sidewalk space to get them along the street. I recommend six to six to eight or nine feet just so that a couple could walk hand in hand and then uh, another couple can pass them. Uh, we also need to think about kind of buffers from the traffic. So sort of a furniture zone and a um, you know six foot furniture zone. Charlie Gandy used to always show a picture of him uh, laying down six feet on a <laughs> on a uh, on a median and you know, the size of one consultant. So, um, you know, a buffer from the traffic and parking can also be that buffer from the traffic as well. And then sort of, you know, coming from the, the building to the sidewalk, 
uh, and out to the street, then we think, need to think about narrowing the lanes. And there's really no reason we can't have uh, 10 foot lanes or even nine and a half foot lanes. And that, that you know, most cars are about six, six feet in width. So nothing can be over eight and a half feet. So we really can narrow the, the, drive, the driving lanes and that visual uh, narrowing, and that can be done just with, you know, laying down the paint. That can actually really tell the drivers to drive, drive with more care and drive slowly. For crossing the street, we then need to think about breaking up the task for the people who are crossing and making people visible. So bulb outs at corners in a mid-block are really good. Signage to sort of help the people be able to assert their presence is also really important for crossing the street if you don't have signalized intersections. So rapid flashing beacons, uh, rectangular rapid flashing beacons are really uh, helpful that it can be pedestrian activated. And then median islands to sort of break up the task. So shorten the distance and breaking up the task of crossing. And a lot of these can be done with, uh, you know, with fairly low cost, effective treatments with paint and signage. And, you know, we can sort of design the streets that way. And, And again, it sort of comes to like telling the story to drivers as soon as they get off the freeway that they're entered into, entering into an environment where uh, they need to drive with more care. So those are just some of the things that I think we can do in sort of a cost-effective manner. I think it would be helpful for us to define what streets we're talking about. And I still have that image of Charlie uh, laying in, in the street uh, <laughs> yeah. there. It, I'll, I'll have to be sure to tag him on this so he, he knows to, 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 to listen in that he, uh, <laughs> he, got, he got mentioned here. I'm also looking at your graphic, too, that you have here uh-huh. in, in this paper um, that, that was uh, recently published. The encyclopedia entry? Yeah. Yes, the encyclopedia in, entry in, in transport modes and, and street design for active travel. And, and you've got the, the widths here. So you've got the width of a standard person on a bicycle at three feet. A car is five to six and a half feet. A van or ambulance uh, is going to be seven to eight feet. I would probably also say if it's a van or an ambulance, it's probably also one of those larger quote unquote, light duty pickup trucks, right. <laughs> you know, everything's oversized. And then when we look at a straight bodied truck, you know, we're, we're talking about a fire truck or a, you know, a delivery van, things of that nature, we're talking eight feet. So when we talk about a, a narrowing the lanes from, you know, the standard 14 feet, 12 feet, you know, trying to get it closer to 10 feet, nine feet, eight feet, you know, it, that's the context. That's the, you know, is that we can do this. Right. And there's a type of, of lane or street that we'll talk about in a little bit that I see a lot in the Netherlands, but I also see a lot of it here in North America in some of the older neighborhoods. And we'll, we'll get to those streets uh, later, but let's go back to what you were talking about because you, you dove right into a, a lot of detail in terms of getting people across the street and getting people along the street. And I think we should define the street. What, what type of street are we talking about? Is this like a, a, an urban downtown street? Is this a residential street? What's the street? Yeah, I think we're talking about an urban downtown street. Okay. Uh, but we also need to think about, and I didn't uh, mention yet, uh, protected bike lanes and the bike lane infrastructure that, that needs to you know, needs to go from the residential areas to the, uh, to the downtown areas. Yeah, I think residential streets can be a little bit different. I mean, residential streets, you can you actually, I think there's a lot of streets 
uh, in the suburbs that uh, don't have sidewalks and that they they could be looked upon as uh, kind of a shared street. Uh, they act as, as such already, and I think we can just sort of embrace that as a different kind of street. So, and, and that can be done with uh, with paint and signage as well. But uh, you know, traffic calming can also be good in, in those in those residential streets as well. But we're mostly talking about kind of urban urban connector streets. Uh, how do we actually you know get a connection to the downtown core or the or the sort of the urban place that we're trying to get people connected to? Okay, so cool. So now now we have that defined a little bit better. So we're talking about we're trying to create it, it maybe this is an old main street or what we call a high street in in the UK or whatever. It's it's like where stuff is happening. We're we're trying to create streets that are places people are going to gravitate to and be. Yes. One of the things that I think is a challenge in and and we we run into this and the Dutch run into this as well. The Danes definitely run into this is trying to be everything to everyone. Yes. And trying to still prioritize throughput of motor vehicles versus still be attractive and uh, livable right. <laughs> of a street. It's hard to serve both sides, right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I think that uh, a lot of streets, especially arterials, have uh, what I call a sort of schizophrenic identity and they have an identity crisis that they've sort of been, you know, there's one, one side, there's the state DOT uh, department of transportation who wants to get the, you know, maximum throughput. Then there's a, uh, then there's the retail activity uh, trying to come in and out. And I think that these sort of competing identities are, are difficult and they manifest in the, in the physical design and operation of the street. So it becomes an unsafe, unlivable place so I, I appreciate your point about how do we actually uh, foster throughput as well as retail access and livability. Well, and I'm even challenging whether we should be thinking that, whether we should be thinking throughput. Right. In other words, if we want to really truly be successful at creating livable streets and active towns, maybe that's not the measure we should be looking at. Right. I agree. And if we do look at the throughput, maybe we, we change that what which we're measuring and we don't think of vehicle throughput, but we think of maybe people. Absolutely. People present and maybe people moving along there. And then that kind of changes the dynamic a great deal. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, one of the diagrams they have in my uh, encyclopedia entry there is one of throughput. Uh, the maximum throughput is usually around 30 miles an hour. So if that's your maximum throughput, you're really not compelled to, to have vehicles travel at a higher speed. And, you know, you really can have like lower speeds and uh, and lower speeds are so much safer for pedestrians crossing. Another diagram I have in there uh, actually shows that fatalities go up quite a bit exponentially after 20 miles an hour. And I think that the reason for that is the that uh, people, you know, we as a species have have evolved to survive being hit by a car at the fastest speed we can run. We really should think about having our speeds be slower, no, no higher than 25 miles an hour, 20, 25 miles in our, in our core areas, because that's you can still get the maximum throughput at a, at, a, at, a, at a relatively low speed. Yeah, and what's really, truly magical about bringing the motor vehicle speeds down is it, it does make the entire environment that much safer, it also gives time 
for both the drivers as well as those out outside of the motor vehicle to make eye contact, to be able to communicate. Right. Absolutely. And, and ultimately, the, the, the key is, is that not only is a potential collision more survivable and less likely to cause serious, serious injury, but more importantly, or most importantly, that's a collision that probably could have just been avoided because at slower speeds, you can react quicker and you can, you know, you can be able to uh, avoid ever having that collision or you can communicate and make slight deviations or, you know, so yeah. my, the point being is that it, it actually in the end might be that much more effective, maybe even more efficient and a, an overall, a, a more pleasurable in experience for everyone by just simply bringing the motor vehicle speeds down. And in your paper, we, you talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, in these environments, in any environment where you expect that there's going to be mixing of motor vehicles and people, <laughs> yeah. in other words, people not in a motor vehicle, uh, that you're bringing that speed down to those non-lethal levels of, yep. you know, 20 miles per hour. And I would even say, you know, depending on the context, maybe maybe even closer to 10 to 15 miles per hour. Because the, the, the slower we can actually get it, especially if it's a truly a shared space or a truly intense space, bringing those speeds down will make it that much more enjoyable to be in that space outside of the motor vehicle. Yeah, it becomes a sort of a virtuous cycle of livability that, that we we occur. And I, I think you, the way you put the way you put it, how it's at slower speeds, there's a chance for us to to avoid the collisions and and for um, you know better chance for eye contact. And then if, if we have an environment like that, then uh, we can sort of reach the tipping point of making it a very livable street. We are sort of left still with it in some cases where you have to also navigate traffic to different places. So there's always a, a big question about it. In the book, we talk a lot about winners and losers and, and where should the traffic go. And uh, one of the key parts of the book was to keep traffic out of residential streets. So the idea then is to put it on the commercial streets. And, you know, so we have to, we have to weigh these things out. Your one section of the road has, an if, uh, how you manage it has an effect upstream and downstream. So it's, you always have to have, you, always, you have to think, at a larger scale, uh, often when you're trying to deal with the streets. Yeah. Getting back to that concept then of getting people across streets, getting people along streets and strategies, it also occurs to me that we do have to further define that, that street you know, even a little bit more because we also have different varying widths and we may not have all the space, you know, for everyone to have a piece of the road so that there's peace on the road. Right. <laughs> I stole that from Kyle Wagenschutz and some other, uh, some of the folks in the local innovations group over at People for Bikes. So, okay. So where I'm heading on this is, is the following. Under perfect scenario, perfect situations, and we're able to have a space for a person who's driving a motor vehicle to be able to drive the motor vehicle. Perfect. They're able to, to, to get along that street. Then we also maybe if, if possible, uh, have a space, you know, some, some, some real estate set aside for someone to park a motor vehicle. Okay. Because 
I, I, I'm not anti-parking of, of, of motor vehicles on streets if I can use that motor vehicle to help protect <laughs> more, more vulnerable right. roadway users or street users and create a more appealing, safer, more comfortable environment for the people who might be walking along that street or cycling along that street or even at an outdoor cafe along that street. Because depending on the space, if we've got enough space to be able to have, you know, a lane of traffic, a parking lane, thereby creating a parking protected bike lane. Right. And then have the ability to, to you know, have the pedestrian realm and or if it's if it's appropriate, maybe it's a pedestrian slash cafe realm. So that's when if we, we have the, the the space and we, and we do that. And that's a huge step forward that has really in the last 10 years been a game changer in North America, because typically we would do it the other way around. If we had parking, we would have the parking right up next to the curb where the pedestrian realm was and that cafe was and the bike lane was put next to the moving traffic. Sort of that typical unprotected sort of bike lane. And we we now know that that's not the way to go. I'm going to point to another one of your graphs in your paper here, the classic graph that looks at the original data that Roger Geller had and then was then was re uh, you know sort of confirmed in 2016 with Dill and McNeil, which is looking at identifying the groups of cyclists. If you have any chance of getting to the 60% of interested but concerned, you're gonna have to create a much more authentic, safe environment, i.e. a protected or a separated environment. Yes, and, and bike boulevards as well. So greenways that they call them in Portland. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that okay. later because <laughs> that's a completely different thing. Because when, when right. once we get to the bike boulevards right. and the other treatment that I want to talk about is the advisory bike lanes. Once we get to that, that's more of a shared space. So what we're talking about here is the fact that in this type of environment, and, and maybe what we have to do is, like the Dutch, define what the prevailing motor vehicle speed in this environment is. Because essentially their rule of thumb is that if the prevailing motor vehicle speeds are above 30 kilometers per hour, then you're separated or protected. Right. I think that the idea of protected bike lanes is very important and a new and important strategy that we're seeing more and more in this country. And the idea of having a parking on the outside that actually uh, protects the bike lane on the inside uh, is a good way to go as well. And well, and not only the not only the cyclists, but also the pedestrian realm. And if there's cafes there, right. it also moves the motor ve- moving motor vehicle traffic, uh, you know, away from from people. Yeah, and that noise intrusion, you know, that that threat and uh, and noise from the vehicles really. I mean, if six feet makes a big difference in buffering you from the noise of cars going by. So it's a it's it's really important uh, connection to make to make our streets more livable and active. Yeah, and we and we talked about noise earlier too, be, and we know that the noise goes up exponentially as the speed goes up. Yeah, that's right. And also the closer you are to the traffic. Yeah. So having that buffer, having that so that was ideal. Yeah. 
That's our, this is our, our downtown commercial urban area. And we had the space to be able to do a parking protected space, you know, protecting the more vulnerable users. What do we do when we don't have quite enough space in these urban environments? What are we doing now? Yeah, so I think uh, I think it's tough. I think when we when we don't have enough space, we need to think about how we're how we're designing the signage and the story that we're telling drivers. That uh, you know the buildings actually you know the buildings we've talked about help the signage and uh, narrow the lanes. That can also help as well. So those are th- those are important things we need to think about to make it safer for bicyclists. Uh, if we want to have bicyclists travel on these roads as well. Yeah. So one of our biggest challenges in North America is we have a plethora of what Chuck Marone refers to as strodes. We have these wide streets, corridors that are, you know, street road hybrids, which are high speed. They're multi-lane, high speed lots and lots of business accesses and and the buildings that are along these ways are are not like what we had talked about they're not following the good land use patterns and they're not following the good building architecture we're talking about places that have parking lots out front the buildings are set way back right these these look and feel like well they look and feel like despotic environments where if you're not in a car, you know, you're, you're just not comfortable. And even if you're in a car, more than likely, if you spend much time in that environment, you're not too happy either. Right. <laughs> but we have so much of this. Right. Dealing with that type of environment is much, much more difficult. Ultimately, we, we could probably do things three or four hours worth of, of this podcast episode trying to deal with uh, those. So I, I don't think it serves us to spend too much time on them to, other than to say, go back to your rule of thumb. If your speeds are in excess of 20 miles per hour, 50, 25 miles per hour at the top, yeah you need to be able to provide protected separated space for the more vulnerable users, which are, again, those people who are in the street space in that area that are on bikes, on scooters, in wheelchairs and walking, right. period. Right. You know, and in those places, you might have space, you might have more space for a bike lane or a protected bike lane. You might. If, if you can do, if you can actually take one of those multiple, multiple lanes. Yeah and do some pretty major clawbacks right. and 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 basically quote unquote do a right sizing or a you know or a road diet and redefine space in in that environment and they're happening right. but those are huge battles yeah and then also you could uh, protect the sort of the dutch protected uh, intersection uh, that's also shown in the uh, in the encyclopedia entry Okay, cool. So you did the Dutch protected intersection. So, but in order to make these types of things really work well, okay, and the Dutch are learning this as well uh, through trial and error, which is one of the great things about the Dutch is they try things and they get a feel for how they're working and then they tweak it and they keep continuously improving them. What we're really talking about and the way that this truly does become a safe, inviting environment that continues to get 
and activate those people who are the interested but concerned is it has to feel authentically safe. So we do we do need to still bring the motor vehicle speeds down. Yes. And we need to minimize the number of lanes of motor vehicle traffic. Ideally, it's one lane in each direction. Right. Again, so that we can shorten up those distances yep. and to be able to make that happen. One of the things that they have learned and 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 they're now starting to go back and look at intersections where they can do this is to, again, one lane in each direction and then transform it into a Dutch style roundabout situation where they can bring the motor vehicle speeds down in the urban environments. They're prioritizing people walking and biking. And because they're they're creating a situation where you have to have visual communication you're you you're negotiating and the the person driving isn't just blindly going because it says a green light says go again we're reinforcing what hans monderman was talking about and what ben hamilton bailey was talking about is if we can encourage the drivers to act intelligently (laughs) then they won't go and run people over willy-nilly they don't have a desire to kill children so we're seeing that that is a more intelligent way to go about this. And like I said, in those environments where it's in the urban setting, they'll have it be those be bike and ped priority areas and, and functioning. Much different than our, our typical North American uh, modern roundabout situations. Right. Uh, definitely very different. And uh, you brought up Hans Monderman again, and I think some things they've done uh, in terms of alternate uh, pavement treatments, changing the, the sight distances, bringing in the context along the, uh, from the surrounding uh, land uses. Uh, you know, if you have a school, you kind of, you kind of bring the school and market with special pavement and, uh, and paint and things like that. And sort of removing, I mean, I've, I've spoken a lot about putting down lines and, and putting signage but you're right that you know if we're if we're going for the naked street uh, treatments, we need to think about uh, sort of a more comprehensive stripping away of of all of the uh, kind of engineering treatments from uh, vehicles that really make the space uh, really make the drivers feel like they're guests in the in the space of pedestrians and bicyclists. What a, what a wonderful entree into bicycle boulevards. <laughs> And because that is the tagline of a Fietstrat is, you know, auto tagast, yes. the, 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 the motor vehicle driver is the guest in this environment, which means that they need to stay behind the, the person who is on the bike and it, it is a, a priority area. So let's talk about the bicycle boulevard context. It's also a, a graphic that you have in this paper and, and we can maybe do a little bit of a compare and contrast. The images that you have on here, you do have like a, a, the stencils of the sharrows that are on the lane, but the intent isn't the same as like the way sharrows have been misused. Right. I think that your intent is that is more along the lines of like the stencil that the Dutch use of the, of the feet strut. Yes. And I think that, you know, we have so many miles and miles of uh, residential and commercial roads we're trying to deal with. So we need to think about how we create a network that's uh, safe and comfortable. And on residential streets in particular, the bike boulevards make a lot of sense. And so they have traffic calming elements. They have barriers that are, are permeable for bicyclists and walkers and pedestrians, but they block the traffic from coming through. 
so that you start, you lower down the uh, the amount of vehicle traffic that you're dealing with. And I think at the most, you really need to think about ideally around 400 vehicles per, a day on the on the bicycle boulevards. And I think no more than 1,500. And uh, it might be hard in uh, like places like Los Angeles to find roads that are actually lower than 1,500. So you need to need to actually do a lot of diversion, uh, not a whole lot, but a fair amount just to protect these uh, bike boulevards. So you want to divert traffic away from the bicycle boulevards because if you imagine if you have more than 1,500 vehicles a day, it's about 150 an hour that, that a bicyclist has to deal with during the peak hour if you have a 10% ratio of the, uh, uh, of, the, um, of the average daily traffic. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point, though, that I think it's, it does us a disservice to look at current ca- traffic counts of motor vehicles to determine where our safe streets should be. I think our safer streets need to be built and have some intelligent design in terms of like thinking about where you know, if we're creating a, a permeable environment for bikes and peds, but the, the, the motor vehicle gets shunted off to one of the other arterials, guess what? You're going to see those counts go down. Right, right, <laughs> so exactly. The point being is that if we keep looking at current numbers and motor vehicle numbers, it's like, well, yeah, you're prioritizing the movement of motor vehicles. That's what you're going to get. Right. I mean, that is another form of induced demand right there. That's what you're, that's what you've built. Conversely, if we're looking at a situation where if we can make it a safer network, a safer environment, so that interested yet concerned group starts going, well, wow, gosh, Thanks to Professor Bruce and all these other people working hard to make my streets, my neighborhoods safer. You know, some of these many, many trips that I'm taking in my motor vehicle that are really quite bikeable in distance. I'm going to just ride. It's a beautiful day. It's yeah. <laughs> and it's like the more you do it, then it becomes a habit. And the next thing you know, you're 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 riding your bike, you're trip chaining, you're, you're doing all of these types of things. And uh, maybe you don't ever get to, you know, Professor Bruce's level of, of, you know, commuting one way eight miles. But it's like those some of those shorter trips, some of those low hanging fruit start to become available. So getting back to the nitty gritty of of the design, the bicycle boulevard designs and the feet strut design. And I threw it out there earlier, the ad, ad, advisory bicycle lane. One of the one of the other designs that we that I see a lot there in the Netherlands is basically um, a, a space where the there's two way traffic for motor vehicles. There's sort of a painted uh, or you know the typical Dutch red lane bike lane on either side. And the the two-way traffic for the the motor vehicle lane, there's no center lane, which means it's so narrow that if there's two-way traffic, they they need to, you know, if there's cyclists along there, they're essentially, you know, yielding and coming to figuring out who's going to go where. And, uh, And that's one of the treatments that are out there. And technically, it's another version of what we're talking about, which is a shared space. Right. No, it's a good, it, a good example. And, you know, they, again, they do a good job with alternate paving treatments and, you know, and there's good, you know, it's good indication that the, that the cyclists 
are are present and are visible, and they can you can have that eye contact. And the story that that a lot of the Dutch drivers are being told is that this is a cycling space, and even the Dutch laws are also really important in this respect. That you know, they, on a vonerf on a shared street, if you're a pedestrian and you're hit by a driver, the driver is assumed at fault. Whereas in our country, we don't we don't have that assumption in our laws. So we can we can actually adopt laws that that make drivers more. Um, more uh, liable for accidents that could also yeah. go a long way. That's another future episode that I need to do is, uh, is all about, uh, you know, the, the, the law and the legal side of things. One of the other things that you had mentioned uh, very briefly in passing there was talking about the markings on the ground. And of course, uh, we just uh, had the the comment period uh, on the MUTCD wrap-up, and uh, one of the the things again, the, this this particular document, this particular manual, the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices, is you know for most people you've never heard of the darn thing, and but it 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 comes at this. It's been almost a hundred years in existence. And it, the whole point of it is so that a stop sign looks like a stop sign, right. <laughs> no matter where you are in North America or in the United States, you know, a stop sign, it looks like a stop sign. That's at the very, very simple essence of it. But then it gets into some really, really quirky stuff. And you had mentioned markings on the ground. And for instance, they don't support having creative crosswalks. Right. And, you know, it, and it's just like, obviously, we're trying to change this. From from your perspective as an academic and somebody who's been deep into trying to think about livable streets, where are you coming down on this whole thing? Oh, well, I think that, again, it's going back to telling an intriguing story to the drivers, not a, not a, not a predictable story. So artistic treatments of the crosswalks could actually, you know, indicate to drivers that this is a special place that people need to think twice about. I think that uh, you know the sunrise, uh, the 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 um, things they've been doing in in, in Mark Lear up in Portland, the the sort of this at the intersections drawing thing, painting big sunflowers and things like that are really are really important. Yeah, and let, let me explain a little bit about what you're talking about uh, for for the listeners who may not know. These are um, usually in residential areas and neighborhoods. Frequently, they're along some of the bicycle boulevard areas, the greenway areas. And similar to like a slow speed, small you know, traffic calming device, like a, a traffic circle, the neighborhood gets together, the community gets together, and they just do this beautiful sort of group project, community project of painting. And there's this yes. beautiful murals and... And we're starting to see some here in, in the Austin area as well. And the whole point being is that this is people space. Yes. These streets are people spaces. Many of these streets, again, don't have sidewalks. Many of these streets are shared space. And so it's a form of communication to the drivers. Hey, this is a different environment. This isn't a go fast area. This is a place where I'm likely to encounter squishy vulnerable people. Right. Exactly. A people place. Yes. And, and so yeah. this, and the MD, so the, the probably, uh, MUTCD, um, doesn't allow for that kind of, uh, that kind of treatment. And so we, what do you mean doesn't allow <laughs> who are these people? Right. <laughs> what is this manual? Exactly. 
So uh, I think that there's a lot of things that uh, need to be looked at for the METCD. I think the 85th percentile rule is another one that needs to be examined, which is kind of crowdsourcing the speed, uh, the speed limits of streets, uh, which for people that don't know, it's the 85th percentile of the drivers. What, what speed are they driving at? And so places often set their speed limits to that design speed. And if the, if the design speed of the road has been 55 miles an hour, it's going by a school you've got a, you've got an issue. It's again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier is stop looking at what's happening now on your street and ask the question, what should this street be? How should this street perform? Right. And if you've got a school there, then, you know, I would say from a health behavior and from a safety perspective, you darn well better slow the motor vehicle speeds down to less than fate, fatal levels, which means you need to bring those speeds down to 20 miles or less, right? 20 and miles per hour or less in those. A lot areas. of stro- a lot of roads are like this. You know, these artillery roads, arterial roads that um, we're trying to deal with, and trying to make more livable, suffer from this problem. Yeah. One of the other things that you had mentioned earlier was it was about uh, we were talking about some of this, uh, the traffic calming things. Another strategy that is just a brilliant, brilliant strategy. Uh, and in hindsight, I'm like, oh, obvious. <laughs> and that is a continuous crossings. So what I mean by that is, you know, for a uh, and, and we're talking about elevations here. So if you have your 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 pedestrian crossing and you have your uh, your your cycle track uh, along here and it's it's traveling along and hopefully you know maybe both the pedestrian and the 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 the, the cycle track the the bike lane is elevated relative to the uh, to to the motor vehicle travel lane and when you get to these side streets that are crossing streets and, and you're creating a crossing at this level, it remains at that elevated state versus the way that we've been doing things in North America where you the, the, the person who is walking, the person who is biking, the person who is in a wheelchair is actually descending down to the roadbed. That's just an absolute brilliant concept. And it, the funny thing was, is it, it really drove home to me when I, uh, I, I did an active towns tour trip to, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts and seen some of their installations of how they did this. And they did it in a retrofit way too. So it was lighter, quicker, cheaper and put it in. And it makes all the difference in the world because it puts people who are walking and biking at a quote unquote elevated status relative to that. So, and I think that's kind of what you had mentioned when you talked about the speed tables and raising up the, the area there because it communicates, it's, it communicates something completely different to people driving when people walking and biking are in that area. Absolutely. No, that's, it's a really good treatment. It, it prioritizes pedestrians. You can use, uh, nice paving treatments that announce to drivers that this is where pedestrians and bicyclists are going to be, be present. And it, 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 now it sort of provides a gateway to your, to your area. And, uh, so it could be a really good treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll re I'll, and I'll say it again, pedestrians, people riding bikes, people on scooters, people in wheelchairs, mobility devices, 
this is who we're talking about. Yes, <laughs> it's right, not right. just about bikes, you know, it's not just, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's anybody who's not inside that uh, hermetically sealed uh, motor vehicle that, that we're, we're talking about here. That, that tin can. <laughs> that's right. That's right. What else have we not discussed that you want to make sure we cover here? It's important to think about kind of the climate action component of all this that, you know, these are little mini, mini energy, uh, mini power plants. They're traveling around and they're, they're, you know, thousands of pounds and they're, you know, creating a nuisance energy wise. They're really inefficient. Most of the uh, gasoline that's being burned doesn't really translate into the, uh, to the uh, drivetrains. And, uh, you know, they, they're a menace to uh, people trying to walk and bicycle. And we need to think about, we need to rethink our uh, regions through land use and uh, planning and design. And we need to think about need to think about how we make uh, streets more humane and uh, accessible to all to people who want to be traveling outside the uh, confines of these uh, tin cans. Yeah, and it's because you know, as humans, we are in a situation where we have the capacity of doing extraordinary things. We can do things physically. Physically, this is not a huge stretch for us. We can walk. We can bike. We can get places. We can do that. But we're going to take the route that is most comfortable, most convenient, feels safe. It's part of comfort. And so once again, getting back to, you know, that that concept of, you know, if 60 percent of people are out there are like, yeah, you know, if it were safer, but I'm concerned about it being safe. If it were more comfortable, yeah, it's got to be a little bit more comfortable. Come on. I, I got yeah. I, I don't want this to feel like a Herculean, Herculean, you know, type of thing here. And, and it's got to be convenient. Yeah. It's got to be something that I don't feel like there's friction of having to choose to be able to, to walk to my destination. Yeah. I don't want to feel like there's friction to be able to jump on the bike and go. Yep. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, in my, in my, um, both in the encyclopedia entry and in the, the book Livable Streets, I have a graphic that talks about how to create an ethical, livable, uh, empathetic, equitable, and justice and just environment. And it needs to be safe and comfortable and peaceful. You need to think about it being connected and accessible and convenient. Uh, so land uses. And then you need to think about placemaking and aesthetics uh, to make it enjoyable. So just like, just like you're saying, I mean, we're right on the same page. Well, and, and we're also on the same page of, of habit um, research is that if you are able to continue to do something and you're able to get the immediate hit of enjoyment because it was a, an enjoyable you know, thing, the aesthetics were pleasing, it was, it was attractive, when you complete that event, when you complete that particular task, you're, you get that immediate dopamine hit feedback. And so it helps to reinforce habit formation. And it's much more effective at habit formation than some sort of far off goal that, you know, like losing weight, you know, you may not, you, you can't see that you can't get that, that feedback right away. That's really well put. Yeah. So having that immediate feedback of which fits into that that diagram that you have here uh, so perfectly is 
is that, you know, if it does, if it is peaceful, it is enjoyable and it is convenient, we're more likely to do that. And if we're more likely to do it and it fits into the context of, of, of it being, you know, empathetic and have a sense of justice and, and equity, I mean, all the better because that's the whole point. Yes. It's got to fit into that context. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're, and we're basically trying to recapture and maintain the humanity of our streets. Right. So yeah. we need to think about the human rights to the street and uh, how we actually can support it. Uh, you know, it's about, we have about 6,000 pedestrian deaths a year. It's about 70% of all crashes and about one every 90 minutes. We also have, you know, really high fatality rates uh, overall in the U.S., where we have about 38,000 people die each year in the U.S., and that equals to about 104 deaths a day, which is equivalent to about a jet crashing every other day. And we just don't seem to recognize that, you know, that's happening. And, I mean, if if we had a jet going down every day, it would be, it'd be front page news. But we have a system that's actually allowing us to have this 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 high of a fatality rate is something we should really be thinking about. Worldwide, it's about 1.3 million people are killed each year and about 20 to 50 million people are injured. Right. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, the, the Dutch have proven through their sustainable safety initiatives that uh, we don't have to, you know, be complacent and just and just accept these rates the the vision zero initiatives in uh, sweden uh, are notable and then uh, obviously the success of of norway is also just uh, phenomenal i think they had a situation where they had zero deaths uh, in the oslo area this past year which is fantastic and a past guest on the uh, active towns podcast was angie schmidt with her wonderful book right of way oh yeah uh, so if you want to dig deep into some of the the unfortunate trends with pedestrian fatalities uh, be sure to rewind and and listen to that uh, episode my final question for you, because I know that we're uh, out of time here, Bruce, is for those people who are, you know, listening to this and they're inspired to make a difference in their communities, what advice would you have for them? What should they do? Well, I'd say that more power to you. I think that uh, the catalysts, the people that are interested and the people that are that want to make a difference, they, they really can. You know, if you're if you're after an issue, if you get inspired by the book, Livable Streets, and want to make a make a change to your streets. I think keep at it. Find your uh, find your champions within the agencies and be a champion yourself. And I talk about how we need to support our champions who who kind of are, are working on an issue twenty four seven. And because the people who are really interested in making the change are the ones that actually make the change. And the book itself is designed to help those who really want to make a change uh, make that change. Fantastic. That's great. And uh, the book title again is Livable Streets 2.0. And what's the best way for folks to follow along with your work? I think uh, just uh, look at my website, www.bruceappleyard.com and look me up at San Diego State University. And also uh, stay tuned with with, uh, future work on this subject. Bruce, hey, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. It's been a real pleasure, John. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for tuning in to episode number 78 of the Active Towns podcast. Again, due to the length of our conversation, I'll keep this short and sweet. Please head over to the landing page for the episode on our website at activetowns.org to check out the bonus content Bruce sent our way 
And if you're really stoked about creating more livable communities, please consider picking up a copy of his amazing book, Livable Streets 2.0. By the way, I'll be in Indianapolis next week for the Walk Bike Places Conference, so be sure to say hi if you're planning on being there as well. Well, that's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.